All right, guys, welcome back to our what third roundtable uh, with everyone. So uh, excited to have you guys back on here for our chat. Um, I know we kind of talked off air. We wanted to just kind of catch up. And so, Brandon, I'll start with you, man. I know you kind of had something uh, drop since the last time we we did this roundtable. So, yeah, maybe fill the audience in on that. Yeah, absolutely. Well, now I can officially uh, say that I'm uh, an official podcaster like you two. Um, so I recently dropped for everyone out there that hasn't checked it out a podcast called the Chasing Clarity Podcast. It's the Chasing Clarity Health and Fitness Podcast with one of my closest friends, Jeff uh, Black. And um, we're only on episode three so far, but it's been a great project. We've been working on this for a long time. And honestly, both of you guys were two of the people that encouraged me most in terms of doing my own podcast because we've done so many over the years. And I was just waiting for the right time where I could really align my schedule because as you guys very well know, like I'm I'm tough to track down and to get a timing with. And I'm, I'm fortunate that we have a good relationship that we're pretty flexible with one another, but to do it with someone else, especially someone as busy as Jeff, uh, it took a long time to coordinate. So looking forward to putting out, you know, great information like you guys have over the years and just really contributing to the space even more. Yeah, man, I'm, ex- I'm excited. I listened to some of the, the first episode and I hate that his name's Jeff because I kept hearing you say Jeff and I, I kept thinking you're talking about me. I'm like, ah, oh, son of a bitch. He's talking about the other Jeff. <laughs> Uh, just because Jeff like isn't you know a super popular name, but um, it isn't. Yeah. But I got too many J's in my life, man. Think about it, Jeff, Jeremiah, the other. That's Jeff. right. I mean, it's all around. Yeah. Um, well, I feel like all those PEC guys. Is that like the thing you gotta have to? You have to have J. Pretty much. So it's Jason Theobald, Jeff Sue, and Jeff Black. So yeah, it's it's a lot of J's. Um, I have J- uh, uh, Jeffrey Sue coming on the podcast and um, uh, Jason Theobald in the next in the next couple of weeks. So I'm gonna get gonna get them on. Um, oh, and yeah. then and then obviously we're all gonna see each other in, in about a month down at the PDC in Nashville. So looking forward to that and actually like connecting with you guys in person. Jeremiah, I've only met you. I feel like I've met you like a million times in person, but I've only met you once in person. <laughs> and Brandon, I feel like I know you and like. We've met a ton of times, dude, I'm looking forward to it, but, but yeah, looking forward to that. And I I was looking at the talks and there's going to be some good ones there too. And, um, Mm -hmm. so looking forward to that too. Uh, Jeremiah, I know we were talking off air, man, you, uh, running a little cut right now. You're looking lean. Thank you, dude. Yeah. I am feeling very small right now, but it is going well. I am what 11 weeks in I'm down about 15 pounds. As I was talking to you before, I tend to lose I tend to lose, like anytime I start a cut, I always think my legs are way more jacked than they are. It turns out I always hold a lot more body fat in my lower body than I'm expecting. So for me, like the first 10 pounds of that was just basically watching my lower body get smaller, upper body basically stay the same. Last few pounds have been nice because I'm really seeing a lot more change in the upper body. But also like, this is something that I talk about with clients constantly where I think like when people compare progress pictures, they only look at their abs, right? Where it's like, Hey, we have to look at the whole picture. Look how much like more your delts are popping. Look at how much leaner your arms look. Look at how much like your measurements in your lower body has changed, Like kind of a side tangent there. But I also like, that's an important point where I, people literally just look, well, my abs look the same. I don't think I made any progress this week, right? Where there's, Hey, there's so much else here that we need to look at, but no, that has been good. Um, I am going to Bali here in August for Jackson Piaz's event with uh, Tristan Winters. I think you guys are both familiar. So we were planning to take this to like the photo shoot level lead, but I kind of decided with that I know there's going to be like, he's going to have a professional videographer. I'm sure there's going to be a lot of pictures. So I kind of decided like, hey, I'm going to be shredded at any point in the near future. That's the thing I want to be shredded for. Got to see if I can impress Jackson. Um, so... <laughs> 
with that, I think we're going to wrap it up here. We'll probably maintain right around this current level of body fat, which for me, once you want to get more food in me, I think I'll feel pretty good at, and then probably cut down again, like six to eight weeks before that. Cool. Yeah. That'll good be stuff. I like the goal, man. Yeah. I, I, I think, I think it'd be cool to see how you do here with like kind of breaking this uh, fat loss phase up into two different um, phases. I think that's pretty cool. That's something that I've always kind of wanted to mess around with. Um, but I'm kind of curious to see how, how it goes for you there to, you know, again, have that kind of diet break in between and, you know, get lean, but then get even leaner before. Um, Brandon, do you kind of have like any uh, spots on, on you that like, kind of like Jeremiah said, where like, you know, it's a little bit, you, you hold body fat a little bit more. Yeah, I would definitely say uh, my, my abs and my low back. And a lot of people will sit, look at me and say, oh, I don't, I don't think that, but I'm very lean through the extremities. So like my arms, you guys see, like I'm in a building phase, like I'm eating a ton of, you guys see it's, I'm very vascular and stuff. It is really my trouble spots or my low back, even my upper back um, a little bit and uh, my low abs. And that was always a struggle for me during contest prep. So I really had to, you know, get into those trenches and dig myself out. And there was many low calorie days and lots of cardio and I did what I had to do. But I will say from my perspective, I've done a lot of uh, seasons in the past where I've had shows that were, you know, 12 weeks apart. So I would qualify and then I have a nationals. So I would reverse myself out for three to four weeks and essentially get back to a more sustainable level of calorie intake like Jeremiah is going to be doing. And that I saw immense benefits because we have to think about just like the body adapts downward when you're eating in a deficit, body adapts up. So you start feeding more. And just like I always say, like, let's eat more and move more. You're going to move more subconsciously. So you're going to be burning up that extra energy that you're taking in. You're going to see your energy expenditure increasing. You're going to see your quality of life increasing. So, you know, PRs in the gym are going to be set again. So there's so many benefits of that. And I would be, I wouldn't be surprised if you stay just as lean or even leaner. I've had guys that I've had, you know, I trained a couple of IFBB pros and those seasons are gauntlets. And I call them a gauntlet because it's like, you have to race for points for the Olympia. And sometimes you're competing four five, six times just to get that Olympia, Olympia qualification. And I've had guys that have done three, four, five shows in a season, but they're not back to back, man. It's not like the natural federations where they stack them, you know, from September through October or November. It's, it's these long durations. And so I've seen guys where I've increased their calories up to six, seven, 800 over what they were in a deficit. However, we've been able to do it in a titrated fashion where I'm upregulating both their energy expenditure and their energy intake. They're maintaining their current body fat percentage. And then when we got to dig back in, it's easier. It's, you know, we have more room to play with. So I'm looking forward to seeing how that goes for you, Jeremiah. Yeah, well, I'm interested to see as well. Go ahead, Jeff. No, you go, you go ahead, man. You go ahead. Yeah, it's definitely a different approach than... I've taken in the past and it's, it's been cool to see also because the approach that we've taken here is much more in alignment with everything that we discussed with kind of this high energy of flux approach where my calories have just barely dropped relative to where I was in the building phase. And it's been so interesting to see just like the difference there and how I feel in my training um, versus like the previous approaches. I've like my, my last cut was very much, it was like, Hey, I'm working all the time. I'm only getting like four or 5,000 steps a day. This is like a year and a half ago. And calories were so much lower. And it just it has been interesting how much different, like how much better I felt taking this approach. And I'm, I'm very interested to see too what it's like with like that reverse out. Uh, what I was going to say is, Jeff, for you, because we, like you literally just got out of your photo shoot yesterday. And I know we were talking about this off air, but I would be interested to see like how lean you would have to get for your quads to just be peeled. Because those things are like massive. But for them, could, have you ever seen your quads like super lean? Nope. This honestly, this is the leanest that they got. And like, I just, I don't know. And Brandon, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on this and, and Jeremiah too. Like, 
that they just seem to be, I don't know if it's just where I hold a ton of water weight there or, or what it is, but my upper body will, will lean out. And for whatever reason, the legs just like it, it, each bodybuilding show I did, it was like, I had the mass on the legs, but like, I just couldn't, I couldn't get them to lean out. And I think, I feel like I've added in more, like at least Jeremiah, we, we've worked more on like, uh, uh, I feel like I'm finding better exercises for the quads and I'm doing more like quad focused stuff, but also like leg extensions. I feel like that's one thing that, you know, it's going to give you that kind of middle, that middle muscle there on the, on the quads. Um, and I feel like those, those have been helpful. And, and I kind of noticed that, but man, I don't know what it is. Like every time I try to get lean, it's like that. I just like, I don't know if I hold a ton of water there or, or what, what it is, but yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know if you have any thoughts on that, Brandon or anything. Yeah. So I'll be honest with you. I've worked with over a thousand people at this point and I've worked with a ton of competitors. So I've seen uh, body fat distribution patterns that would blow your minds. But generally we see that, you know, guys have more Android patterns and uh, women have more gynoid patterns. So for instance, men will hold more in their low stomach and low back, kind of like I do. And then mostly women will hold in their hips and thighs. And that's more of a, an evolutionary uh, mechanism because that would, be the area on a woman that would be most um, essential, the most essential amount of body fat for, uh, you know, essentially raising a child. So that's what we see generally, but that doesn't mean that every individual has that. So generally what I've seen with some clients of mine that have great legs, it's both. And now here's the thing it's for every gimme, there's a gotcha. So it's a blessing and a curse. You have great quads. I'm sure you don't have to train them with high training volume, probably maintain them and you're in a deficit. So Jeremiah is shaking his head. Like you hardly train them at all. You know what I mean? So tell me, you know, give me a little insight to how you train them. And if you're in a deficit, I did see your pictures that you posted either yesterday or the day before. If you're maintaining all that tissue, despite not having a lot of stimulus and not a lot of calories, it might be an area that you really need to dig out. You know what I mean? You need to get much lower. And then another question I would have for you, I know you've been on stage before. What is your weight now as compared to what was your previous stage weight? Yeah, I'll start with the stage weight. So when I was, uh, so this, this photo shoot, I got down to about 150, I think it was like right at 154.8, um, which I was telling Jeremiah, that was about five pounds heavier than what I did for the last photo shoot. Now there's two things that I, I have put on muscle, but I also just didn't get as lean as I could have, but I felt, I told Jeremiah off air, I felt leaner, but like also bigger too, though, at, at, at this weight. Um, and so that's, and then when I competed, it was probably around like one on day show days. It was probably 140, not like high 140s uh, that I that I got to. Um, and then as far as quad training goes, man, literally, I think Jeremiah, what we have six sets program, five to six sets programmed in I there. Think for, it's five right now. Yeah. Wow. So yeah. So like literally, that's, but that's been for like a year. We've just had quad so that's in plus. a surplus in and in a deficit, and we're seeing yeah. very little degradation of that tissue. It honestly might be that. You might be that one of those individuals that to get that extra definition, like let's think about it like this. For certain muscles, you're going to skew the definition in that muscle by training it or by getting a pump. And that happens with the quadriceps. That happen, happens with like the triceps and stuff because they're striated muscles. So you don't want to get a pump, but you do need to put them through contractions, especially something like a biarticulate muscle like a quadricep. So maybe even doing something to get more of, you know, that rec fem development, really that sweep and doing more quad extensions, even if it's not for the for the growth aspect, but more for the development and more of the conditioning aspect. And I'm not saying like guys, you know, that are listening to this, I'm not trying to say burn in the cuts. Like we know that's not going to happen. It's going to be a matter of both body fat as well as the deficit. But as you get leaner, it might be easier to show. So it's the same thing as like, there's a big argument about training abs. And so I think that with a lot of the movements I do, I already train my core. It's already a, a stabilizer essentially. So I'm bracing. However, I will say towards 
you know, my, my contest preps or even my photo shoots, I do train my core. And why is that? Because when I get on stage, I still have to pose that. So training it is connecting my mind to my muscle, you know, and really getting a better mind to muscle connection where I can contract it both easier and more efficiently. I'm able to fire those muscle fibers, both type one and type two, a lot more effectively. So if you're not training it as frequently, even your ability to pose it is not going to be as um, efficient as it would be if you were training it more often. So what I would do is we even see, uh, I believe Brad Schoenfeld did a study on looking at flexing in between sets and it did show some very minimal growth. You know what I mean? And so even I've had guys that do poses in between sets that mimic their bodybuilding poses that they need. And it's not only the fact that it's getting them better posing, but it's also helping with the exhaustion factor. It's helping with conditioning. It's, you know, sometimes I use that as a form of neat with some of my guys where I have them doing posing rounds after their training, when they're exhausted, because it mimics what they're going to do on stage. But think about it. The reason I got so good at posing for photo shoots was because I came from a competition background. So when I would have to do hours of photo shoots, I was so used to contracting my abdomen and hitting a shot, making it look easy with a smile on my face. It was second nature, but you get someone that's really not used to that. They do a photo shoot for the first time or, or they're inexperienced and they might have the greatest physique in the world, but it doesn't matter what your physique is like when you're in your mirror flexing for your girlfriend. It matters what it looks like in that picture on that stage and what you can deliver when the, that shot comes or whatever. You know what I mean? So it would really come down to you know your efficiency of contraction, maybe going through more contractions, even doing some BFR work. If you're really not trying to grow tissue or you're really just trying to not induce fatigue. So you're taking, you know, I kind of look at volume as a, as a, um, as a budget and you're allocating. So I'm assuming because you have dominant quads, what Jeremiah is doing within your programming, he's taken away from quad volume and putting in something else. that's a weaker body part. Mm -hmm. But we know that when you don't train to failure with BFR. So if you utilize the techniques that were used in most of the research, which is the 30, 15, 15, 15 protocol, it doesn't induce any muscular damage or fatigue. So that could be an easy way. You strap those babies on, you use 30% of one rep max, and you go for a 30, 15, 15, 15, just for the conditioning aspect. Interesting. And that honestly sounds absolutely awful though, from just, <laughs> I'm just so thinking I, about do it. I will tell you from my personal experience, I had to do that during my rehab after my surgery. It is excruciating, but you don't get any soreness. Which, you know, like, like I said, I mean, literally, I mean, I remember this was like towards the end when I, I was doing the pendulum squats. I mean, man, I'll tell you what, there was like, like after those three sets, dude, my quads were just sore and I, I can just feel they're just like kind of inflamed too. So, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's crazy, but, um, I, I do, I do think that the kind of contraction part, you know, that is an interesting thought and definitely something that I don't do regularly in my lower body. So that that's definitely a, a good thought there. Um, and even just sure. think about it from like, just a like a logical perspective. What are the muscle groups in your clients that you see them grow best? Because I'll tell you from my own perspective, with that, besides my competitors, it's arms and chest. And why is that? Because as guys, we were used to flexing our arms. You know what I mean? So we're, we're doing that type of movement. However, you ever ask like a gen pop client or a lifestyle client to flex their back? It's awkward, man. Yeah. They're not used <laughs> to that. And they also, they that's generally a muscle group that they struggle with. If I tell someone that's not a bodybuilder, hey, contract your hamstring for me. They don't even know how to do that. So if you, you don't know how to flex something, it's very hard to engage it in a muscle or in a movement. And so that's a limiting factor, not only in your training, but your ability to show that muscle, even if you have it developed. That's a good point. And I'll tell you what, man, posing that is like, it's fatiguing and, and it's, there's, there's a skill to it, like a huge skill to it. You know, that was a thing that people don't really, they kind of underestimate before you go into a show is like, you know, getting that down and it, it can, it makes such a big difference too, in terms of how you look, like you said, a huge difference. It's huge. You know how many times I've had someone tell me that they have lagging quads and they send me a, an update photo and it's them with their feet standing straight forward. And, and a lot of guys that haven't been on stage, they wouldn't think about this, but their feet are standing straight forward 
And so they're showing me their quad and they have very little sweep. And I tell them, I send them a message back or a video back. And I say, what I want you to do is just turn out your toes and just bend your knees a little bit. And all of a sudden it comes to life. It doesn't matter. Like these were two seconds apart. Nothing else happened in between those shots. They didn't gain a bunch of muscle, but they look like they do. And so oftentimes what a lot of people don't realize is bodybuilding is an illusion. What you see on Instagram, that's an illusion. It's someone showing you your best shot or their best shot. So, but that's part of the game. So it's, it's manipulating that. It's also like when I have guys doing shoots or I do shoots, I stop training. If I have to show my legs, I'm not training quads seven days out because I know that I get a, a big inflammatory response. So I'm trying to flush out that fluid um, or that edema, you know what I mean? Muscular and even muscle damage. So we see in protocols, muscle damaging protocols, they've done studies where they've tried to glycogen replenish guys after a muscle damaging protocol. They have seen zero glycogen replenishment up to a thousand grams of carbs post-workout. Or, or in the days post-workout because damage decreases muscle sensi- uh, uh, insulin sensitivity to the point that it blocks you. Essentially, you've caused so much damage that not only muscle protein synthesis is going towards that, that damage response, but it's also glycogen is going towards that damage response first because your body's prioritizing recovery over the restoration of or building of tissue or rebuilding of muscle glycogen. Yeah. Well, we, you know, the week leading up, you know, I was what we had me chasing a pump and, you know, that was, I mean, that was fun. I, I wish I could do that all the time, but not the most productive training, but yeah, go ahead. And we, I mean, we even took lower body off, but I would, I'd be interested to see, like, if it was, a if it, we were going to a shoot where it was like, Hey, I do really want to show my quads. I do really want to prioritize these. I would say first, like, cause like, as we discussed throughout this, like the tissue is definitely there and even like that sweep like you have a big ass sweep it, it again does almost look like some edema which i would say like i think some of that would i know we've talked about these different phases but for you we've pri- primarily been in hypertrophy i would also be interested to see like if we went through like a neural phase for example if we could pull some of that inflammation off just a bit but also like to brandon's point i do very much think some of it would be again just getting leaner there because i think like like your upper body is absolutely shredded, but still like, I'm guessing like you weren't, I don't know if you checked for like glute striations or anything. I know I asked you to send me over some glute shots and you didn't send them over. Um, <laughs> but I think still like probably the biggest thing is we would probably need to push you leaner there as well. Yeah, no, I agree. I, I think at the end of the day, getting a little bit leaner definitely would help. But uh, I, yeah, I think, I think too, just like, like Brandon said, I think really working on like the contraction, I think would be, would be super helpful. Um, but cool guys. I don't know, Brandon, if there was anything you wanted to update the audience on in, in regards to your training or, or yeah. Yeah. Everything's going really well with my training guys. Uh, I actually posted an update, Jeff, you had commented on earlier. Uh, I'm just really getting back in the swing of things of, of very intense training and really trying to get my physique to another level uh, again, because I had lost significant amount of tissue and then, you know, from my surgery. And then I actually, you know, after I'd finished the rehabilitation process, I was so busy with business that you guys know I'm up at three 30 in the morning. Like I trained super early, like I don't want to say it's not a priority because fitness and training is my life, but it isn't, it doesn't supersede my family or my businesses. And I've been so busy and I'm so fortunate for, for being busy that I've really prioritized all the clientele that I work with over my own physique progression. So just recently, the last couple of months, I contacted one of my closest friends and mentors. And I said, listen, I'm handling all, you know, all this programming for my clients. I have mentorship clients. Like I really just want to devote myself to them. And I am someone that you know, I have all this knowledge, but I'm very over analytical of my own self because I know so many things that I've tried so many different pro, um, approaches and different methods that sometimes I'm like, well, this has worked in the past. And I have all these journals and all these spreadsheets on my computer. I said, listen, Joe, take this off my hands. You know, coaches need coaches. I believe in coaching more than anything. And if someone's going to, you know, I believe that a client should invest in me, I'm more than willing to invest in others. So I told him, listen, I just want you to, 
you know, um, I want to divorce myself from the process. And what I mean by that is the process of overthinking and overanalyzing things. So he's just taken over. We're progressing at about 0.25 to 0.5% per week um, gain and just, you know, slowly titrating up calories. Obviously, you know, I'm very into the health uh, monitoring aspect of things. My blood glucose this week has averaged 84 milligrams per deciliter. So that's right in that golden range that I like. And so uh, I'm just looking forward to, and, and guys, keep in mind, like you, you might see some photos that I put up. I'm going to be regaining tissue. I had this tissue already. So I'm not going to sit here and lie to you guys and say, oh, I'm, I gained 15 pounds of tissue in this phase. No, I'm regaining old tissue that I've had previously, but it is nice just to get back to progressive training and, and just chasing the logbook, man. That's just something that I miss in my life. And I kept feeling myself having to kind of hold back the reins because of the injury and the surgery and, and the accident that I had previous to that. And I was just in a lot of chronic pain. So I knew that if I I felt good in the gym and I pushed it later that night. I wasn't going to sleep because I was going to be in chronic pain for my back. So um, it, it's just nice to be back to um, a progressive approach to training, which is something that it's a key principle in my life. So it's something that's taught me oh, so yeah. many different key uh, characteristics of who I am as a person. And it's just great to be able to, to mimic that. And also I'm all about being a walking testament to my clients. So I'll, I never asked them to do something I wouldn't do. And I've had to pull back just like I've had to have, you know, pull back others. And now it's time to let off the reins and really go after it. That's cool, man. I'm, that Yeah, that's super cool to hear that you, you have a coach. And, you know, I, I think we all kind of talk about this. You know, we all have coaches. You know, Jeremiah coaches mm -hmm. me. Jeremiah has a coach. You know, Brandon, now you have a coach. And I think it is important to, to have somebody else there to just kind of keep you in check, right? Like you said, you can overthink things. And I know Jeremiah keeps me in check, too. And, uh, you know, I'm sure, Jeremiah, you feel the same way about, about your coach, too. Uh, I agree, though, with you, Brandon, on the training, man. There's something about, like, just going in there and, like, trying to beat last week's numbers. And, again, you know, we're not trying to do that every single week. But, you know, there's something to that I feel like it's just, like, I don't know. It's just super fun to go in there and, and try to beat that each week. And, you know, it's like we've talked about before, it's, you know, kind of like a, almost an art in a way we're trying to perfect our craft when we go in there. And I think that there's, there's something to that. So, um, cool, man. Appreciate you sharing that. So you guys ready to uh, dive into the questions? Let's do it. Cool. Good. All right. So first one on um, this. So some of these came in, uh, for the previous round table we did, we couldn't get to all of them. And so the first one is, so fairly lean female, uh, five foot two, 110 to 115 pounds, 12% body fat on an in body, uh, living a high energy flux lifestyle, about 15 to 20 K steps per day, uh, six times per week, strength training, um, intermediate lifter calories generally are like 22 to 3000 per day, uh, have sustained this level of activity, physique and calories for about two years, feeling good. Bone mineral density is high strength levels are consistent, but have not had a period in three years. Should I be worried? And before I send this. Thank you for all that information. I feel like we kind of know this person now. So whoever wants to lead off with this, um, I will hand it over to you guys. I actually went back and forth with her on this. Now, I was actually going to kick this question over to Brandon because basically my answer was just going to be, I would like want to see blood work and see how things are looking there. But I actually got some additional context from her. So, yeah, made honest. Uh, <laughs> so she, I asked if it had this like, stop. She said, yeah, pretty much stopped quite suddenly. It is quite strange because energy levels, et cetera, feel good. With a few of the concerns that people always mention about functional amenorrhea, also given that I don't have any intention to have children, it's actually been quite a relief to not have a period. Um, and then there was, sorry guys, one more here. Okay, that's actually, that was what I had. Oh, oh no, my bad, my bad. Okay, so uh, she was previously a, she was previously a CrossFit competitor, um, had her regular periods during that time. That said, I have not competed since 2016 and struggled quite a bit with disordered eating, et cetera, as a result of not having a good plan to exit. Um, made concerted efforts to lean out around two years ago. 
again, with a high energy flux lifestyle, nutrient-dense food sources, et cetera, and maintain a decently lean physique. So it sounds like really in her case, she feels good psychologically. Her biofeedback is all in a pretty good place. Um, she said, so she's measuring her body fat percentage on an in-body, which of course which we know some, is not accurate. Right. But it sounds like as a whole, she's still pretty lean. Jeremiah, you want me to still take this over, my man? My, my, my take on this was going to be, Hey, I would want to see blood work. I would want to see how things are looking there first and foremost from my end. Did she mention her age? I think that's the one thing that I wanted to ask, but from my end, it didn't sound like she had had any symptoms of like perimenopause or anything of that nature. So from my perspective, I mean, again, unless we're getting into like menopause, for example, where of course it's normal to lose your menstrual cycle. Eventually I would still, of course, think it would be concerning and like, your menstrual cycle is going to be a marker of overall health, but that was basically my take on it. Yeah. So honestly, I, I have a little bit of a different perspective and maybe it's because I've had a lot of women come to me in this, in this state over the years, I've had a lot of former competitors, whether it be CrossFit or, um, you know, physique competitors that have been downregulated hormonally for years. And remember, we have to keep in mind in all aspects of life, but especially dietarily training wise, we adjust and we adapt to what we, we give our bodies, not only physically, but psychologically. So a lot of times, and I'm sure you guys can attest to this, you might have someone that they come to you in a very suboptimal place. You look at their blood work or you look at their biofeedback, but to them it's normal because that's their way of life. So when I hear this female's attributes, I hear her about her constant activity levels because it's three years that she mentioned that she's at these activity mm -hmm. levels and then her issues with her cycle. The first thing I think of is that it's possible that she's in a state of low energy availability. Um, and I say that because that's what's been most associated with active females and hypothalamic amenorrhea. So essentially we have to think about this from a physiological perspective. I'm going to break this down a little bit uh, high level and then we'll, we'll go a little bit deeper, but low energy availability is first and foremost sensed by the hypothalamus. And this could come from a variety of, of reasons and in a variety of situations. So it could be that the hypothalamus senses that you've been eating very low amounts of calories. So we see that in metabolic adaptation. That's where we see the downregulation of leptin. Now we're not getting as much leptin secretion. And that's a signal to the brain, to the hypothalamus. Hey, you know, we're in a dangerous position. We also see that when you're at very low body fat levels, because body fat is the, the organ, the tissue that secretes leptin. Or we also see that when people are doing excessive amounts of exercises, uh, of exercise that's causing an energy imbalance. So I've seen that in soccer players. I've seen that in cross country runners. I've seen that in endurance athletes. But at the same time, CrossFit's a great example of that because it's such a demanding glycolytic uh, situation. And if she was back in 2016, that's when they were really like still in that paleo uh, era where they were eating lower carb, you know, very high nutrient dense food sources, but not a lot of calories. But with a state of low energy availability, we'll see reductions in, you know, first and foremost for females, reproductive function and health, which includes the cessation of their menstrual cycle. So it's normal that a woman that's in a state of low energy availability would see a loss of their, their cycle. And it would be continued if they stay in that state of low energy availability. And then we also see, you know, sex hormone reductions. So we're going to see, you know, decreases in their estrogen levels, their testosterone, their GH, and then also growth hormone levels being low. We're going to see also lowered levels of IGF-1. Then from there, we're also going to see a decrease in their thyroid production, their energy expenditure, their metabolic rate, sometimes their libido, um, you know, obviously leptin as well. You know, so these are things I'm always trying to peel back the layers of the onion. So, you know, obviously, Jeremiah, this isn't your client. You're not going to ask her, hey, how's your libido been? You know, with your partner, have you noticed anything different within the last three years? But for anyone out there or for this female in particular, that's what I would really ask myself. Am I noticing that I don't have as much vigor in terms of 
my relationships and things like that. And we have to keep in mind that there's a lot of similarities between what we see with metabolic adaptation and low energy availability. So what I would like, you know, to do for this female and for anyone else that's, that's interested is, you know, I suggest you look up metabolic adaptation and my name on any podcast app, because, you know, at this point, I've probably done like 10 podcasts on this topic, um, which can help you understand more what's going on from a physiological perspective. And I can even reference you to, I did one with Jeff and I did one with Jeremiah. So if you look up either of their podcasts, you'll hear about metabolic adaptation. I go through all the physiology and the psychology that comes along with it. And here's the thing, like when you've gotten used to it, I've had many physique competitors come to me in a downregulated state, but they it's, they know no different because they've been there so long. They're used to, their body has adapted to this you know, low energy intake and this low body fat level. And so it's like second nature to them. But you know, honestly, if we're looking to restore her menstrual cycle function, you know, a lot of times the most useful approach is the one that no one wants to hear. And that is to regain more body fat. You got to increase your calorie intake and you're most likely going to have to decrease your training volume, um, whether that be steps or usually it's going to be higher intensity training first, because that is the most energy demanding first and foremost, and the one that's going to be most stressful. So that's going to be what your hypothalamus um, essentially recognizes as being the biggest contributor to your, your lack of energy because it's causing an excess cortisol production. If you're just doing like low intensity steps, you're not getting as much of a cortisol or sympathetic drive. But we have to realize that in any of these cases, for anyone that's out there that's experiencing something similar to this, the issue is that the person, you know, you know, this person or people suffering from this got into this position because they love training. It could have been part of their sport. So in the instance of CrossFit, you know, this is a part of their lifestyle and they have a goal or even maybe a career, which requires them to be lean. So I've actually had a lot of former competitors that are also coaches that are online trainers or they're, you know, in-person trainers that come to me in this state and they're very scared to get out of it because they're suffering side effects, such as a loss of menstruation. However, it's also tied into their look, into their jobs. That's really where we have to kind of like take a step back and realize, you know, in this, this female's, um, you know, instance, she said, I don't really have an interest in having children. Well, that might be all well and good, but it's still not a great state of hormonal function. So for this particular female, I would definitely suggest to get a hormone panel run, uh, all-inclusive, get a CBC, get a CMP, but then also get a, 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 a hormone panel, look at estrogen or estradiol, look at progesterone, look at um, all your other, your thyroid markers. So I want to see, you know, not just TSH, because that is not a great marker. That's a pituitary marker. So we need to see, uh, you know, T4 and T3 free T3 and T4, reverse T3. A lot of times I, I have these females come to me, they have sky high reverse T3. So essentially their T4, which is inactive, is converting into reverse T3, which is essentially binding to the thyroid receptor site and blocking the ability of metabolically active T3, which actually is what runs your metabolism from exerting its actions on the cells. So you're not having the same metabolic rate, whether you notice it or not. And so that's what I would suggest. Well, we also, there's many other factors, you know, there's the insufficient long-term energy stores. So we know that, you know, low, you know, low body fat is going to be a contributor, but also psychogenic stress. And that's, you know, psychogenic stress is essentially, you know, day-to-day stress from life, which we see in literature can honestly by itself, just psychogenic stress. So from work or from children that can stop a female's menstrual cycle. So women are very um, sensitive and I don't mean that in a negative connotation, but they're sensitive to the effects of stress because Really what we came, you know, what we were evolutionary meant to do was to create children. And so if a woman was in a stressed position, they wouldn't want to be fertile. And, and the first step to that is the loss of menstruation. So really I would, um, you know, tell this female, Hey, pull back on some of your training, maybe a few days per week. You know, what I've done with other females is I've pulled back their training volume. I'm looking at increasing energy availability. I'm also looking at specifically titrating up carb, um, 
carb intake. And that's specifically because there's some research that has specifically shown that carb refeed, uh, refeeding has been shown to increase what's called LH pulsatility in females. And this is by a researcher, um, I believe her name is Ann Lukes. I know the researcher's name's Lukes. She's the one that did most of the research on energy availability. So I would suggest you look her up. And she's done some great work on like refeeding strategies for females and has shown that just by switching up the macronutrient um, distribution of the diet, you know, being a little bit favoring uh, higher carb intakes, it's shown that it's helped with that that um, energy deficiency, essentially. Um, real quick, I was just going to jump in. Uh, I, I, I That was like kind of the things that I was, I felt like the overall train volume, kind of like you hit on Brandon, I thought was super like, that seemed like that was a little high. And that would probably be like the one thing that you want to kind of dial back there uh, for a period of time, whether that be like a low volume phase, or uh, I know Steve Hall pr- uh, calls it the uh, the primer phase, like something like that. Um, but that per this particular person, I feel like for them, that's going to be a challenge to get them to pull back on training, right? Like that's like you said, that's kind of their, that's almost like their way to reduce stress in a way, even though it's a stressor on the body. And so you kind of end up getting this, uh, in this endless cycle. And then, like you said, the body fat percentage, I felt like that was a big one. You hit on the stress and then like stress, like you kind of talked about, you know, there's multiple layers of stress there and it's not just perceived stress. It's also stress. And like, you know, again, if you're not sleeping well, you know, that's going to be a stressor on the body. That's going to be stress in terms of like your circadian rhythm. But one thing that, and I'm curious to hear your guys thoughts on this is, you know, when I feel like when you get somebody that trains a lot, they could potentially run into some like digestion issues as well, which essentially, you know, could be playing a role there as well in terms of, you know, that I, I think that it's not going to necessarily affect like weight loss, but I feel like it could affect, you know, her getting enough calories and actually absorbing a lot of those calories as well. And so that goes back to my last point of something to look out for. I feel like this is for anybody that's kind of the high level physical activity and like is scared to like gain any amount of body fat. They think they're eating a lot of food, but they don't do it consistently um, because they just feel like they're eating way too much food and they're going to gain a bunch of body fat. So they like don't consistently eat the amount of calories that they think they are. It's like, yeah, maybe a couple days out of the week they are, but then like for the whole week, they're actually eating way less than what they think. And I think that just comes from being afraid of like gaining any amount of body fat. So that would just be like one thing that I would look out for, because I know for me personally, like going through uh, Jeremiah, going through this last building phase and like tracking regularly. One of the toughest things for me was consistently eating day after day. It's like, yeah, I could eat 3000 calories for like a week, but then it's like, you'd have to do it for like months on end. And like, after a while, it's just like, man, this freaking sucks. You know what I mean? So that would just be like one thing I would tell this person to maybe like look out for basically. And her I wanna, can you repeat her calorie intake for us, Jeremiah, please? It's, it said generally 2,200 to 3,000 per day. Now there's a ton of like, at, to your point, Jeff, like a lot of people will start coaching like, hey, I need an X amount, maybe see your food logs. And it's like, okay, so the last, these three days out of the last month that you track, yes, you already in that amount, but the rest of the time, we don't have data. But like the biggest thing that stands out to me is she's training six days a week and she's doing 15 to 20 K steps per day. I mean, 20, if she is consistently 2,200 to 3,000 calories, that is a shit ton for someone that's 110 to 115 pounds. But uh, to me, the biggest thing that stands out is just how much she is doing. And uh, I, this is something that I actually wanted to ask you about on the last podcast, Brandon, where I think it was in Joel Jameson's energy, cert- energy system certification, actually, where he discussed this concept of like when it comes to daily movement, and Jeff, I think I saw like, you post something similar on your story a while back as well. But like past a certain point, you can only like burn so many calories before further we're just pulling calories from different processes like 
repair of muscle tissue, et cetera, to continue. Yeah. So Jeff and I go back and forth about this all the time. It's, it's called energy. Well, the first concept is um, the constrained energy model. And the second is energy compensation. And so the constrained energy model is something put uh, forth by Ponzer. He's an anthropologist. However, it's been, I'm going to just make sure with you guys, it's been misextrapolated by people within our okay. space. What he has shown is that there's an upper threshold to the amount of calories that you could burn and digest, meaning that there's an elementary um, limit, meaning how many calories can a human being digest and assimilate on a daily basis to fuel that activity? So when I talk about, keep in mind when I, I talk about energy flux, a lot of people get what I say a little bit confused. The first thing I say is eat more. I don't say move more. It's eat more, move more. It's We're fueling the process and then we're, we're coupling it up with activity. And I'm always putting more energy into the system first and then following it with activity. You know what I mean? So with that, what he has shown in his research, now keep in mind, this is on a tribe in Tanzania called the Hadza, that they don't have increased energy expenditure as compared to the Western civilization. But when you actually look into the research studies on this, they're about 30 kilograms lighter than the average Western you know, person in the Western uh, civilization. So you can't really expect if someone's 60 pounds lighter to burn as many or more calories, even if they're doing more activity. Right. So that's, that's the first thing. But what he has shown is, and a lot of people don't actually look into the study, he's shown that there's a limit to your daily energy expenditure at 2.5 times basal metabolic rate. So for instance, Jeremiah, someone our size has a basal metabolic rate about 1,900 to 2,000 calories. That means daily for the rest of our lives, we cannot burn more than 5,000 calories a day consistently. However, in short periods of time, like we have research on uh, Tour de France cyclists, on um, swimmers like Michael Phelps, on firefighters, that we can burn for short periods of time, a month, two months, three months, very high amounts over that. But the reason is not because our body cannot only not burn more than that consistently. So not so for someone our size, more than 5,000 calories day in and day out, it's also that we would never be able to support that nutritionally. We wouldn't be able to consistently eat more than 5,000 calories a day because we would have some you know issues with digestion. So that's the constrained energy model. So I do know Joel Jameson hits on that, but he's talking, he is talking, if you actually listen to his, his talks, I've done one of his certifications, he does reference the 2.5 times BMR. But he also works with, think about who Joel Jameson works with. If anyone out there knows who Joel Jameson is, he's famous for MMA conditioning. He uh, used to train um, Mighty Mouse, which was the number one uh, fighter in the world for years. He, I think he had the most consecutive title fight uh, besides like George St. Pierre. He was working with guys that were training six, seven hours a day. And he was seeing these limits on energy expenditure because these guys were living in the gym. That cannot and will not apply to your average lifestyle client or even competitors, you're really having to get into the levels of endurance athletes that do suffer from low energy availability, where we do see that downregulation in the rest of their bodily processes. Also, we have to couple that with the fact that we will only see downregulations in other parts of our basal metabolism. So our BMR, if we're losing weight or in an energy deficit. So that deficit can be created from pulling calories or doing so much activity that you're put it into a deficit. So we have to consider that I feel like a lot of people put these in different these different camps. They put, you know, reds, so the athletes relative energy deficiency in sport in one category, you know, on um, the energy compensation and constrained model in one camp and metabolic adaptation in another. And they're all looking at different subsets of the population. Metabolic adaptation is more about obesity where you've taken people that were previously overweight or obese and put them into a reduced weight and now you're looking at how does their total daily energy expenditure change. So when someone diets, what happens to them? So that's competitors, formerly obese individuals, we're just lifestyle clients trying to get lean. Then we have the athletes or, you know, some of our 
Hadza, you know, tribal men, and they're looking at their constrained model. And then at the other side, we have our like professional Olympic level athletes, which we do see a lot of reds from, but they're all pulling, they're all doing literature in different aspects, but they're all intertwined. They just word things differently. And that's where we really have to look at the literature and break down. What are they looking at? What down regulations? Oh, they all see down regulations in thyroid. They all see down regulations in total daily energy expenditure. They all see down regulations in sex hormone production. And, and that's where you have to really see the, the commonalities and realize that it really can't be applied to, to lifestyle clients. But in this individual's case, honestly, I think the best situation she could be in is standardize your daily intake. Two, 2,200 to 3,000 calories, that's a massive range. You can't give us that average because that shows that you're not consistently tracking. So first, standardize a range, standardize a, an amount of activity, and see how your weight fluctuates. But really what we need to, for anyone out there that's suffering from a loss of menstrual cycle function, you need to probably increase your energy intake, potentially gain some body fat with that. You need to make sure you're not going long periods of the day with fasting because that's another sign to the body that you're in a state of low energy availability. We even see from some fasting trials that we can lower leptin within 24 to 48 hours of fasting. Um, I would suggest pulling back on training volume, just really focusing on training quality over quantity um, because we really have to manage that training stress. You know, so I'm look, when people come to me, I'm looking at their volume, their intensity, their frequency, to maintain adaptations, but improve their recovery capacity. And I'm focusing on quality over quantity. And then we're also going to have to work on psychological stress because that in and of itself could, you know, this woman, you know, this female or any female, honestly, could be in a, you know, a state of high energy intake and low expenditure. But if she's really psychologically stressed, that could stop her cycle in and of itself. Yeah, no, those are, those are great points. And um, yeah, the energy compensation thing is interesting. I feel like people definitely like, don't look into it any deeper and like, I think Ponzer stuff, at least in his book about, you know, like, Hey, we can only like, you don't want to exercise too much. Like you said, those people are, like you said, smaller, but they're also not eating the standard American diet that is super high in, in calories. Right. And, and that's going to make a big difference. That's where I think people like, you're like, Oh, I shouldn't move a ton, but it's like, no, you, you still should because our diet's a lot different than somebody who has to hunt and gather for their food. So a lot of times with the Hadza, it's really tracked to, to actually, it's hard to track their energy intake because it's so, yeah. it, it, it fluctuates so much because guys think about it, this is a hunter gatherer tribe. So they're going out into the wilderness. It's not like they're, they're tracking their, their macros on my fitness pal yeah. or eating consistent <laughs> amounts every day. Here's the thing. We have researcher research by a researcher named Anthony Hackney at University of North Carolina. So this is where Trexler got his, his degree and all, you know, Greg Knuckles, I believe as well. And Anthony Hackney is like the world's foremost expert on endurance training. And he's actually pulled research where he shows that when they've tested the testosterone levels of males from the Hadza and other uh, indigenous tribes, they are they have 50% less testosterone on average than your average male. Now, keep in mind, most people in the United States, males, we already have like a 40 to 50% rate of low testosterone levels. So these guys are really, you know, clinically, you know, diagnosed as, as having low testosterone. And why is that because of, it's not because they're not getting enough sunlight or they have a lot of stress in their life. It's because they're eating so little. And that's just a sign that they're downregulated. Well, and we meet Brandon, I mean, you, I feel, I feel like kind of talked about this where like th that new, that newer study that came out, that energy compensation tends to happen when somebody is like you said, like in a, in a deficit or, or fat loss dieting, right? Essentially Absolutely. that's, yeah. That's the only time we actually see energy compensation. Yeah. When you're at maintenance, we don't see that energy compensation where you lose calories. Yeah. And then in a surplus, we don't see it as well. So it's, it's about coupling. We can't ever isolate these variables. So that's why when I talk about energy flux, I'm talking about, I'm not just telling you, hey, increase your steps. It's like, we're increasing food. We're increasing steps. We're pulling back on other stresses. We're pulling back on hit cardio to reduce cortisol production. And then another thing I want to hit on, Jeff, you mentioned stress and, and down regulation in, in GI health. And we have to think about 
just the physiological ramifications of stress. So let's think about that from like a high level perspective. When you have stress, it induces, you know, increases cortisol production. Well, what does cortisol do in terms of digestion? It blunts your ability to secrete hydrochloric acid, which is one of the number one, you know, that's a digestive enzyme that we need to break down protein. So right then and there, if you're trying to recover, you're trying to rebuild tissue, if you're not able to digest and absorb and break down those proteins into amino acids to be assimilated and, you know, uptaken into muscle, you're not going to be gaining muscle, nor are you going to be recovering, replenishing properly. So even just that in and of itself, we all know people that have had, you know, whether they're in a deficit or they're in a surplus and they're stressed. And, you know, we have to think about there's a mind to, you know, a, a brain to gut connection, essentially. And that's why people say, oh, I have a gut feeling, or I felt sick to my stomach. When it was an emotional thing, these are things that are all interlinked and intertwined. So there's a lot of ramifications between your stress and other physiological systems. We can never separate psychology and physiology. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I, I feel like we summed that up really well, Jeremiah. Did you have anything else you wanted to uh, kind of add to, to that? Um, I do not. Yeah, no, I think I think that I think that would be really helpful for her to kind of listen to this and probably again not the thing that she she wants to hear. I feel like again for people in that situation, that's the hard thing is not necessarily training more. The hard thing is is pulling back and you know that you know that's think that, about that's, your future self. You yeah, know what I mean, just always always contractualize it in the fact that I'm doing now for what will benefit me later on, and it's it's valuing the long term success over the short term gratification. Yep. Um, cool. Let's dive into the next one. So uh, this one. <laughs> It doesn't make sense, but I think I think I understand what they're trying to say here. So there are some people who are skinny fat with different issues. What are some solutions for this? Uh, for example, skinny fat with low body fat, no muscle. Um, they also put like skinny fat and then and skinny fat fat, different methods. I, I figured like with this, it was probably like no matter what, it was going to be relatively the same uh, type of thing here on this. So uh, I'm going to throw that over to one of you guys here to uh, go to start this one off. Yeah. So, I mean, I think it will, there will be some variability depending on where you're coming from. So if we look at skinny fat with low body fat, no muscle, so basically just skinny, right there, what I would say is kind of, we have to look at like, what's the most, I don't want to phrase this as an issue, but like, what's the most pressing thing we can fix for first, right? So, okay. If you're in this place where you are very skinny, you don't have a lot of body fat or a lot of muscle tissue. Okay, we need to focus on building muscle tissue first and foremost. We're not probably gonna get a ton out of trying to keep you leaner if you're already very lean. So hey, we probably need to enter a building phase, focus on eating in a surplus and seeing an appropriate way to gain. Um, just skinny fat. So there we can, I mean, in my experience, I would say like, hey, it's like, hey, I feel a little bit pudgy, um, but I still don't have too much muscle tissue. Again, we could go in either direction. Honestly, though, what I found is a lot of clients who start in this position where, hey, I'm not necessarily super lean, um, but I also don't necessarily have a lot of muscle tissue. Again, those are typically, at least in my experience, the people that have already been trying to recomp, lose fat and build muscle at the same. And this is just purely speaking off of an anecdote. I've again found that a lot of times, and you guys may have different thoughts on this, but I've again found like, again, a lot of times the most beneficial thing, just because oftentimes that individual seems to have been in like a deficit mindset for so long and like dieting, 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 trying to get leaner is what they've been focusing on for so long. Again, I've often found that like we can take advantage of those newbie gains relatively quickly because a lot of times they're coming from a place where like my training has been far from optimal, maybe not necessarily newbie gains, but typically they do have like a good window where, Hey, we can make pretty impressive gains over the next like three to six months pretty quickly. That in and of itself will change your physique a lot. Right. And I mean, if body fat is staying 
relatively similar or at worst we're like building more tissue more muscle tissue than body fat and we're gaining a little bit of both even then like if you're gaining more muscle tissue than body fat our overall body composition is going to be improving right so again typically in that case this varies a lot more by the individual of course like what their goals are but I would lean more towards, hey, again, maybe we want to focus more on building. Again, we're probably going to be just in a slight surplus. We want to see the appropriate rate of gain. And then for the skinny, fat, fat individual, that is, again, typically this person. I would say like the, the thing that all three of these cases have in common is almost always they haven't been focusing on fueling themselves properly in their training. And typically they haven't experienced like a true proper hypertrophy stimulus. So in almost all these situations, we are going to see like some muscle tissue gain, but I would say again, like if we're truly like skinny, fat, fat, I would probably start that biasing more fat loss. Um, and as we get leaner, typically we'll see nutrient partitioning improve. So that's kind of the approach that I would take to that. Um, I think that's the best answer I have for that question. Oh, so, um, when I read this, Jeff, you sent this over on, um, it kind of reminded me of something that I get through my DMs uh, quite often. And this is honestly, guys, um, for whoever asked this or anyone that has this interest, we did a whole series kind of on the P ratio and should you cut or should you bulk? And the reason that both myself and Jeremiah and Jeff did this on, on both of their separate podcasts was because honestly, this is the question that I get most often. I have people DM me or I'll have them email me that they you know want to work together. And the first thing that they ask me is, should they cut or should they bulk? And um you know, it's, it's hard when someone just messages you with these very generic, you know, information, I'm, I'm very nuanced. And, and these guys will tell you the same thing. Um, you know, anytime someone contacts me about this, this is where I like to take what's called a needs analysis perspective. So I want to see where they're at physically in terms of their muscular development, their body fat, their health markers. I want to see where they're at mentally in terms of their wants, their goals, um, as well as like their mental health in terms of their relationship with food. Because like Jeremiah said, there's a lot of people that have like this this skewed relationship with food. They've been through many dieting cycles. They haven't really seen the success or the, you know, um, the results that they've wanted. So they kind of live in this restricted restraint mindset. I also want to see their training age and experience, their previous dieting history, um, and what they're doing currently. And after I assess these variables, that's where I'll give them my honest thoughts about what I would think is the most productive direction to head in. And that generally is going to be, you know, whether it be a fat loss focus phase or a muscle building phase, kind of like what Jeremiah said. You know, he looked over the variables of the different. Uh, I guess, um, categories of skinny fat. I, I didn't realize there was three, but you know, we, we learn something new every day. And so, um, he, he went through all of them, but honestly, um, I believe that if you dial things in the majority of these individuals that are quote unquote skinny fat, they can recomp, um, besides those that, you know, there's going to be a few exceptions to the rules. If someone's highly trained and advanced, you know, and they've been nailing everything for five to 10 years, then those people aren't going to be able to recomp, but they probably already have an impressive enough physique that they wouldn't be asking either three of us this question. So, you know, we wouldn't get these from those individuals. And that's where I think a lot of people, they disregard the body recomposition or the process of building muscle and losing fat at the same time. Whereas a lot of these people, they might be a lot of years into training, but they haven't been nailing things. They haven't been nailing their nutrition. They haven't been nailing their training. They're doing a lot of things. And I'm not going to you know, I don't want, you know, the person out there to hear this and say that I'm not saying that they're not trying. You could be doing a lot of things, but not doing a lot of the right things. And that's where a coach really comes into play. So if you are, you know, generally when someone comes to me and they're skinny fat, it's a male that's 15 to 20% body fat on average, maybe a female between 25 and 33. And they're unsure if they should cut or bulk. And that's where I think they're in the perfect position to recomp because it's a lot more reasonable to recomp when you're not at either ends of the extreme. So they're not super lean 
nor are they super, you know, or, you know, or are they super muscular where they have a lot of room for potential if we die, dial in the variables and we look at every aspect of their programming. And I don't just mean the X's and O's of nutrition and training. Those things, of course, those are going to be the key fundamental principles that I work on. I'm going to dial in their nutrition from a calorie perspective, from a macronutrient distribution perspective, a food quality perspective. Generally, I'm working very heavily on micronutrients with people because I find that the vast majority of people that come to me, actually, I ran a, a statistic after my last consultation with Jeremiah, 88% of people that have come to me in the last year have had micronutrient deficiencies. That's a crap ton. And the only 12% guys, I mean, I'm sure you guys will guess this were competitors of mine that had already been tracking things on chronometer or had worked with me previously. Those were the only 12% of all the people that have come to me in the previous year that didn't have blatant micronutrient deficiencies. That doesn't mean their micronutrient distribution was perfect. It means they were in range. And that was generally because they had multivitamin, uh, multimineral supplementation, very nutrient dense diet. Most people are deficient in a lot of these things. So if you're deficient, for instance, in your skinny fat, and you're deficient in iodine, selenium, zinc, tyrosine, you're not going to have proper conversion of T4 to T3. So you're going to have a down a little bit of a downregulated metabolism. And so there's these little variables that you're probably not paying attention to, and you might be doing the big rocks, but you're really not executing them well. And that's where we formulate a plan, which dials in all the, the, the levers of body recomposition change. So your nutrition, your training, your sleep, your stress management, your lifestyle modifications, really change your habits and behaviors and get you more consistent. And that's where beautiful things can happen, especially for someone that hasn't really nailed things year on and year out. Yeah, I, I, I agree with you on that. I think that people underestimate what they can recap. And I think what happens here in this situation is like, people figure like, okay, I either need, I heard I need to either need to cut or I need to be in a building phase. And, and I feel like what happens in that situation is they either cut and they do like kind of this like super kind of uh, quick weight loss. You know, they, they go super low energy. Now, now they're micronutrient deficient, deficient even more. They're not setting themselves up to build muscle. Right. And they just, and then they, from there, it's like they cut so much and then they could, you could see them gain a bunch of weight back, right. And mostly going to be fat mass. So then you kind of get down this endless cycle of like, you just keep seeing like a worse body composition or take a person that's like, should I cut or build? They go to a building phase. And then, you know, Brandon, we just talked about building phase mistakes. They just freaking eat whatever the hell they want. And then now they start to gain too much body fat and they're still not like doing what they want to do. So it's like, like you said there, whereas you take this other approach where you start to work on your overall habits and, you know, like Jeremiah said, just get them now to start building muscle and just focus on overall health and they're going to improve their body composition without really having to like go to either extreme. Right. Um, one thing like, like specifics that I wanted to hit on was like high protein, not, you know, crazy, like just, you know, one gram per pound of body weight. Like, I feel like that's one thing that probably is missing in a lot of these people's uh, diets. Uh, again, I didn't know there was three different, uh, levels of skinny fat. That's like you said, that's good to know. And then, um, I'm kind of curious to hear your thoughts on this, Brandon, uh, movement, like just overall movement in terms of like steps, like that's something from my understanding, that's probably like, if you go from being sedentary to more active, like that's going to help with insulin sensitivity as well. And that could be something that, that for this, if again, like you said, you're going to need to do a needs analysis to see, but I would imagine a lot of these people probably are a little bit more sedentary, um, than, than most, but I'm just curious there to, to hear you on that. Absolutely. So I'll tell you from my own experience and I'll also, you know, bring up some of the research that obviously I've combed through because energy flux is, is obviously something I'm passionate about. The average American prior to um, the pandemic. So in 2020, there was a uh, analysis done of the American population and they saw an average, it was right under 5,200 steps per day. The average American was taking on it as a daily average. Now I'll tell you that I've had many office workers or lifestyle clients come to me, even doing less than that. And that's average. Keep in mind, guys, 
anyone that's listening to this podcast, you don't want to be average. You don't want to be the average person in America is sick and, and they're, you know, on the verge of type two diabetes or prediabetes, or they're tending towards that overweight or obese category. They have high BMI, you know, high visceral adiposity or, or body fat levels. And so they're not in a healthy position metabolically, but they're also not in a physically great position. So the average person was doing around 52, 51 to 5,200 steps. But we see that it takes around 7,000 to 8,000 steps per day just to regulate your appetite, just to get in line with that J-shaped curve of appetite regulation. For metabolic flexibility. And for also for insulin sensitivity, we want to be over 8,500 steps. And there was a research study that did um, challenge tests essentially. So what they did was they put people in sedentary conditions and they compared active individuals that were just, we're talking active throughout the day versus those that were sedentary during the day. And they did one hour of exercise. So we're looking at the prototypical active individual that, that is active in exercises. And then your, your, your typical office worker who's sedentary throughout the day, and then does one hour of vigorous exercise at night. And when they compared the two groups, it was a crossover design. So they had each person act as their own control, meaning they both went through each intervention and was four days at each condition. So realize when you do a crossover trial, it's the same person. It's better than using a twin because what you're doing is you're taking someone with the same genetics and testing two different conditions on them and seeing how their body, that individual's body responds. And what they showed was in the second condition where they were sedentary throughout the day, so that didn't sit in like an office and really not do anything labor intensive, no activity, no movement, besides like getting up to go to the bathroom. During that condition, the day after the last bout of exercise, they did a metabolic challenge test, which is essentially just a high carb, high fat test. And they, they, sh- they test how long it takes for um, the glucose and lipids to get out of the blood. And in that condition, they saw no metabolic benefits from the exercise. However, when they were active, they did see metabolic benefits. So we see that they had a lower... Uh, incidence or they had a lowered level of insulin sensitivity and metabolic flexibility, meaning their ability to utilize both carbs and fats just from being sedentary for four days. So we have to realize that there's, there's even research on, um, what's it called? Um, when you're in mobility studies, I was trying to think of when you lay down and they, they test you, but they do immobility studies to see what the effects of being immobile for like, um, astronauts going, you know, working at NASA. And they see that just one to two days of complete immobility in bed rest, causes rapid decreases in insulin sensitivity. So just increasing your steps, guys, is going to increase metabolic you know, health. It's going to increase insulin sensitivity. It's going to help with nutrient partitioning. So just the act of, say, going for a post-meal walk, it's going to upregulate a non-insulin-mediated form of GLUT4 translocation. So generally, when we eat carbohydrates, we need insulin to shuttle that out. But a lot of the issue with that is that a lot of people don't have great metabolic health, so they have higher insulin levels throughout the day. They need more insulin to essentially open up the cells and deliver that glucose into muscle tissue, into liver tissue, or into fat tissue, then, you know, someone that's in a better state of metabolic health. However, when you're active, you move your legs, you, you, you go through muscular contractions, you lift at the gym, you activate that without the need of insulin. So you pretty much open up those, those muscle cells to receive those, that, those nutrients. So you're increasing nutrient partitioning. And there's so many other benefits from just getting your step count up. That's going to help with your ability to burn body fat, your ability to stay leaner while eating more. You're going to be able to help with lowering visceral adiposity. And also, you know, subcutaneous adiposities from more of the stomach area. So these are things that could not only help your metabolic health, but then also help with that skinny fat condition that you're, you're dealing with. Because a lot of times it's, it's not that these people are overeating because then they would not be skinny fat. They'd be, you know, clinically obese. It's that they're not eating the right things. They're not doing the right things in terms of their training. They're not having a progressively a progressive stimulus within their training. They're kind of just going through the motions and then they're sedentary most of the time. So they're not even just like lean and skinny like a lot of people would be if they just trained and and they were active. 
Yeah, I've, I figured, you know, movement was going to was going to play a big role. And I think, like you said, I think people underestimate that. And I mean, we're, we're meant to move. So it uh, makes sense that you need to make sure that you're that you're doing that regularly. And, and I think it just, again, just kind of makes you more responsive to everything that you do um, in terms of fat loss or, or muscle gain. Um, cool. So let's do let's do the next question. Uh, so I don't think we've gone over this one before. And I've had this one kind of in my questions for a while. So. And, and you guys can correct me if I'm wrong on this, if we haven't gone over this as a coach, are there important markers, which you monitor? Uh, whoever, whoever wants to start Jeremiah, you want to go first? Uh, did we do this that last Q and A? Did we, if so, I'll go to the other one. Let's do, let's do this one then. So my Reese, my trainer recently recommended, I try intermittent fasting for fat loss. Is this a good recommendation? All right. So that was a question that I received and just from a broad-based perspective, I've been getting a lot of um, inquiries and questions about intermittent fasting lately. And it's funny because the trial just came out. I haven't had the time to read over it. I know Meadow posted about it recently. I need to dive into it. But just overall, I just want to take from like a high-level perspective, the fact that body composition improvements, especially when it comes down to like us directly focusing on fat loss, are predominantly driven by calories and protein intake. So even in studies, I was recently reading a study where they looked at 5% of calories from carbohydrates. There is no direct benefit from a different approach like keto um, or any type of, you know, quote unquote, fat burning approach besides an appropriate deficit and sufficient protein intake to make sure that you're losing fat and not just weight. So for those out there, and this was, I had went back and forth with the individual that asked this and I asked you know, why did, you know, did you ask why they, they recommended it? And the real reason was they said that it was a more effective fat loss strategy. That was pretty much what the, the trainer had told this individual that I was going back and forth with on Instagram. And so just a broad-based perspective, I'm not trying to hurt this guy's business, but in generality, guys, whenever you hear someone try to sell you something like keto or intermittent fasting as a more effective fat loss approach, there are, we have to realize that there are no independent factors about these diets that will supersede the importance of both calories and protein. So if those things aren't dialed in in these diets, it doesn't matter. You know, I will say that intermittent fasting is a great way to compress your eating window, but this will not lead to a greater or faster fat loss unless you combine it with a greater deficit than you would use or be able to create with another dietary approach. You know, so that's the first thing. However, we do have the body of evidence on intermittent fasting, including a recent study by Lowe that showed that when calories are matched over 24 hours, there are no differences in weight and fat loss between you know, intermittent fasting or an even spread of eating within a longer feeding window. And then in this study, you know, another thing that they, a lot of people that are proponents of intermittent fasting, they claim about the autophagy benefits, the metabolic benefits, the insulin sensitivity benefits. In this study, there was no, also no differences in metabolic health markers between groups. And honestly, if you actually look at the study, the IF group lost more upper body lean mass than the uh, evenly spread group. So, you know, intermittent fasting, guys, when you look into the literature, besides a few rat models, we have, to, I'm looking at human trials, it has not been shown to improve metabolic health markers any more than a calorie deficit itself. But there are multiple studies that have shown that you are more predisposed to losing muscle, which you are predisposed to losing muscle during a deficit, but you're at a higher predisposition to losing muscle utilizing an intermittent fasting approach or another fasting approach like alternate day fasting um, than you would utilizing a regular eating window. So my suggestion is, can it work? Absolutely. If you're someone that you just see that you don't like breakfast or you're super busy and it makes it easier to adhere to a calorie deficit, or you're someone that likes larger meals throughout the day, that's all well and good. It's going to be great for fat loss. Is it great for muscle retention? If you're not having 
evenly spread boluses of, of adequate protein intake, it could leave you more predisposed to losing muscle mass, but it isn't this one quick fix. So for this individual in particular, you know, I know that it was kind of sold to you as a sexy thing to lose more fat. You know, you could, you could try it out yourself. And I've had people come to me that were very blatantly um, dead set. And I do believe psychology plays a massive role. So if you believe something works, it can, it can work for you. So I've had clients where I've said, listen, we're going to do four weeks my way. And then four weeks intermittent fasting, we're going to use the same calorie deficit. So if you're at 25% calorie deficit, first four weeks, we're going to utilize 24, 25% deficit the next four weeks. And we see very equivalent, um, very equivalent results. It just matters on that person's preference. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I agree. I think that, as you said, the only time I really apply this is never something that I push a client to do because most people are going to come in here when I'm going to want to gain as much muscle tissue as possible and typically get leaner as well, right? So for most people that we work with, that's typically going to entail training in the morning. Now, intermittent fasting doesn't just have to be like, okay, we don't eat until noon, right? We could flip that on its head as well. Um, but for most people that I work with, like typically they're not going to want to, okay, I'm not going to eat after like later in the day, right? Those are when I have meals with my family, et cetera. So from the perspective of us just dialing your peri-workout nutrition so that we can at least like, and it doesn't have to be like to the depth of braided and nice, like two and a half hours on nutrient timing, for example, but like, Hey, let's at least get some protein, maybe some carbs for workout. And then like at very least, maybe some protein post-workout, like, from that perspective, I don't think it works very well in application for most people to like, okay, I'm just not going to eat after like 4 p.m., for example. Um, I've had, I mean, like one client comes to mind where his first fat loss phase, we talked through the trade-offs with, hey man, like, so one of the things for him with those a non-negotiable was these meals out with his family in the evenings where like, hey, we'll go to Chipotle, we'll go do these things consistently. Um, and like to make that work, because he was also someone that was relatively sedentary. So to make that work within the overall calories he needed for this body fat, one tool we didn't implement was intermittent fasting, right? But for him, we discussed like, hey, like from a muscle growth perspective, this is going to be slightly less optimal. Like, are you okay with that trade-off? And even like in his case, over time, we transitioned him more and more to like, okay, now we have a protein shake pre-workout. Now we have a protein shake and some fruit pre-workout, right? And like, so even in his case, because now it's more like, all right, now I do want to get more jacked. So like, okay, dope, let's implement these things. So like to Brandon's point, to an extent, I try to meet people where they're at. But unless it's, it's never a case of like somebody starts coaching and I'm, Hey, we should do intermittent fasting. Yeah, no, that's a good point you bring up. I think that too many people think that like, I, I think too many people would just use it as a strategy. And I always tell people like, if, if somebody just has like this go-to strategy like that for how they go about things, like, you know, they're not necessarily a nutrition coach. They're whatever that is type of coach, right? Like for example, they'd be a, a fasting coach or whatever. So I wanted to share with you guys a couple of things here. I did a uh, podcast interview a couple of months ago with a guy named Matthew, Dr. Matthew Stratton. I don't think he's a doctor yet, but anyways, he works in uh, Grant Tinsley's lab down at Texas Tech, and they do a lot of like intermittent fasting and like body comp stuff. Um, and he, so he's done a lot of research here on intermittent fasting. And one thing I want to say first before I dive into these um, I certainly would not recommend this for somebody like trying to build muscle, like you guys said, right? I think this would be like a short-term strategy for fat loss specifically. And so like, I just want to kind of go over some of the things that I got out of that uh, real quick, just to sum it up. So like, I, I might go over some of the things you guys said too. So I, I, I apologize, but remember, it's just a tool in the toolbox for fat loss, right? Um, basically though, like start with a more conservative window, you know, start with something like 14 hours fasting, 10 hours eating, and then work your way up. Don't go straight into like 18 hours or something like that, right? And also you probably don't need to do more than 18 hours of fasting per day 
uh, as the research has shown little benefit, little to no benefit of going from like a six hour feeding window to like a four hour feeding window, right? Um, basically like stick with the time restricted feeding protocol rather than like the, like you'll see some that are like alternate day fasting where you like you fast and then you eat, like try to stick with a one that, uh, the time restricted one where it's like uh, 16, eight or whatever, just be, just in case like an event comes up because you probably don't want to be that weirdo. That's like, Oh, sorry. I can't eat today because of, you know, I have, I'm, I'm fasting. Right. I mean, nobody wants to do that. I think protein's important, uh, aim for around 0.8 to one gram per pound of body weight. Uh, that's going to do the best we can in terms of like maintaining muscle and like some tips for meals, like your first meal after should probably be something that's maybe a little bit higher in nutrient dense foods, like lean protein and fiber, just because you'll probably be hungrier, like after not eating for a while and like high, highly palatable foods following a fast could, you know, cause you to overeat as, as we know. And then lastly, you guys just kind of, I think you hit on the like train window, try to train during your feeding window. Or if you train in the facet window, make sure you consume protein as fast as possible um, following your workouts. Those are kind of like the main things he that we kind of uh, talked about there. I don't know if you guys have anything that you want to follow up with that or anything like that. No, honestly, he's he's right in line. And you saying that he works at a Grant Tinsley lab, Tinsley's lab, that sounds right on point because Grant has actually done multiple studies on intermittent fasting. And I know the first one he did was they equated uh, the energy deficit and they looked at lean body mass gains. And essentially what they did was they put one group in a fast where on their off training days, they did a 24 hour fast, meaning 20 hours of, of um, no eating and then a four hour window. And they saw less lean body mass gains. However, when they did a uh, 16, eight, they saw equivalent um, in like a um, energy neutral. So when they were at maintenance calories, they gained the same amount of muscle utilizing, but here was the thing, how he timed it was perfect. They sandwiched the workout window with a pre-workout shake right at the start of their, their um, eating window, they worked out, then they had a post-workout shake and they had two more protein feedings. So they hit four boluses of protein and they did a protein equated study essentially where each group. So the, the group that was eating 13 to 14 hours and the group that was only eating eight hours, they both had the equivalent amount of protein and the same amount of protein serving. So everything was equated calorie wise, protein wise. They did it really um, in an intelligent manner. So they saw equivalent outcomes, but here's the thing that study was only eight to 12 weeks. When they recently extrapolated out to a year, they saw less lean mass gains. They actually saw lean mass loss because now we're not just looking at this compressed time period of eight, you know, six, eight or 12 weeks. We're looking at it over the course of an elongated period of time. And then when we compare, you know, uh, regular caloric restriction in a normal eating window compared to intermittent fasting, then it's a little bit inferior. So it really comes down to guys, we're talking about percentage points. And like Jeremiah said, we try to meet clients where they're at, but if someone comes to me and they ask me, Hey, my goal is to lose body fat the most effective way possible while maintaining all my lean mass. Should I intermittent fast? Is that a better way? No, it's not. You know, we don't have the clinical data and I don't see it within my practice. So I'm never going to suggest that. And the issue I kind of had with this was I was going back and forth with this individual and they come, it came to me with the general question that I sent you guys over. However, when I went back and forth, I said, well, is your trainer suggesting this? Cause this was something you had an interest in. Is this, does it fit with your lifestyle? And really what it came down to was their trainer does this, does it with a lot of their clients. And they said that it was a more effective manner or a more effective approach. And that's where we look at the difference between principles and protocols. A protocol is something that you prescribe to everyone. There's, there's no, um, customization. There's no individualization. Maybe for this trainer, it was easy for them to skip their, their breakfast period because they're busy with clients for an elongated period of time. And eating within that eight-hour window really works for them. And what we have to realize is that just because something works for one individual that has a great physique 
doesn't mean that what they're doing is the best way of going about it. A lot of people, especially with great genetics, they get results in spite of what they do, not because of what they do. And I'll tell you that from experience, because the reason I know as much as I do is about all these topics is because I didn't respond favorably. I was that kid that was, you know, what we used to call back in the day, a hard gainer. And it was because I didn't have everything dialed in. I really had to dive into the science and into the evidence to really find effective principles and apply them um, practically to my life. And I couldn't follow what the bodybuilders were doing, or I couldn't follow what other, um, you know, competitors were doing and get results because I wasn't seeing the same results they were. So guys, when you, you know, when you're looking at, you know, someone to follow, whether it be an influencer on Instagram or a coach, look at what their journey was like, look at what their struggles were like, look at, you know, how they, you know, treat their clients or how they go about, like, if someone's dead set on certain, like everyone's an intermittent fasting client, and that's not something that aligns with your life, Maybe that's not a great method for you. And even if it sounds sexy and like, oh, well, he gets all these results with, you know, these individuals utilizing this, it doesn't mean just because it works for other individuals that it's going to work for you. I, th I think what sucks too is like, you know, all those like people are going to see stuff on social media, like, like from the, from the extreme too, you know, and that, that's the stuff that's going to like get blasted out on social media and what everyone's going to see too, you know, and, and that's the unfortunate thing with um, social media, but uh Cool. So let's, let's go in. This, this one's going to be, I feel like we, we kind of, I feel like we went over three good topics there and, and there are a lot of, a ton of information and these are kind of a little bit more like fun uh, questions. So let's do this one first. So what do you, what things do you wish you knew or implemented sooner in your fitness career? Uh, dumbest slash smartest things you have changed done. So you can take that either way you want, but just something like that. Man, to kick it off from a fasting perspective. So <laughs> when I was first into training, like, so over college, I gained through five years, I gained 75 pounds and I thought it was like all lean mass that I'd gained. And then I looked in the mirror, I saw a picture of myself on Snapchat. Actually, I was like, damn, I actually got pretty fat <laughs> these last five years. So, um, for me then I had no concept of nutrition. So I remember I would track my calories, but all would track was protein. And at the time it was, I think it was Jim Stepani's recommendation at the time, like on bodybuilding.com was to, I hadn't found Brandon the cruise on bodybuilding.com quite yet, unfortunately, but it was to <laughs> eat at least two grams of protein per pound body weight. So all I was tracking was protein and I was just crushing. Like I would, I would straight up eat an entire tub, tub of cottage cheese before bed. Um, but that's, this isn't really relevant to my point, but for me, so when I was trying to like, okay, I've gotten pretty chunky here. I didn't lose body fat. I had no concept of how to go about that. Like I kind of half-assed tracking my food for a couple of weeks. I was like, okay, well, macros don't really work for me. So do you guys ever hear of anabolic fasting? Yeah, that was like, that was, uh, uh, great. Yep. Yeah. So that for me was the first diet that kind of worked to me. And like from our conversation, I think everybody kind of understands like our stances on that now, but at the time I didn't understand, like it was very much like, we're going to do this one carb spike in the evenings. The rest of the time we're just focusing on eating, um, just like fat and protein, right? You don't have to track your calories. This is awesome. So for me, I was just like crushing ground beef, and avocado. And I got to the point where like my food was just so fucking gross that I didn't want to eat. So I was losing a ton of body fat, but I was training at like five, six, six AM. Um, and so my eating window wasn't until like noon to one. So I lost, but for me, it was like, I had this experience where I lost a ton of muscle. I got so much weaker, but also I lost 40 pounds. So for me at the time, it was like, man, carbs are, carbs are the thing that was making me fat before, right? I didn't correlate it with all these other things. So I really wish that throughout that time, especially like the five years preceding that, also when I was building, I would have had a better understanding 
of nutrition, how to use macros, even understanding micronutrients and like the importance of that. Like one, I think that would have made that time so much more productive, but also, I mean, like with where this trainer is coming from, I, like, and that was right around, like towards the end of that was right around when I started training. And I remember recommending my clients like, Hey, like I, I tried this, like, and like, I'm not proud of that now. I wish I would have known better than I did, but I think we've all like made mistakes like that in the past where now it's like, no, like that's probably not the way for most of you, but that was definitely, and I think more now, fortunately, I don't think I had any clients that actually followed through with that. I was just like, yeah, that sounds terrible. I'm not going to follow through, but I do wish that, especially like those first few clients that I would work with. And I mean, part of the beauty of what we do is like, still, I learn things from Brandon all the time where it's fuck. I really wish that we would have been doing this like two years ago rather than like implementing this this month. But also I think that's the beauty of us constantly learning and evolving and being around other people that like help us raise our own standards. That's definitely though like a better grasp of nutrition. I just looked at it as like I train hard. Um, I'm gonna get more jacked. I eat plenty of protein, but there was so much that I left on the table. Yeah. So when you sent this over, um, I really went back and forth to myself because I would not be where I am today if I didn't make all the mistakes or I, I didn't go through the experiences that I had. And I honestly wouldn't be as curious or especially intellectually curious as I am if I didn't face some some pretty rough hardships. So first and foremost, you know, I came into this with an eating disorder. So I learned about nutrition out of necessity, not out of a desire. You know, eventually it became a passion and desire. But, you know, as a teenager, you know, early teen, I, I struggled with an eating disorder. So I needed to learn about training and nutrition to really rebuild my, my body um, because it was expressed to me, the nutrient deficiencies I had. You know, I had the testosterone levels of like a 60 or 70 year old man at you know 13 years old. So it wasn't looking too pretty for me. And I was stunned in my growth and other aspects. So that was the first mistake I made. But obviously that's early teens. I was a child. I didn't know any better. And so, you know, the, the biggest mistake or, or something I wish I could go back and change. However, when I, I say that initially, because I went through hardships as a result of it, but looking back, honestly, I would not be the person, the man or the coach I am today. If not for these experiences, I came up in a very, um, bodybuilding era. So it was very, you know, bro science and all these things. And although I had an evidence-based background, like I studied in college, I was very into the evidence at the time. We have to keep in mind, this is the early 2010. So really the only guys out there were Alan Aragon, Lane Norton. It was just coming into prominence. We had Lyle, but a lot of these guys didn't do prep. Like you'll, you'll never hear Alan Aragon really speak about contest prep. You'll never hear Lyle speak about contest. These guys have never prepped anyone or if they have, it's been a very small percentage of their clientele. And at the time they really weren't speaking on these topics. So who did you go to? You went to the bro based coaches that were getting results. And so I, you know, I contacted and I hired a lot of the top, you know, contest prep gurus, as we used to call them back in the day. And uh, it just put me in a really bad position. You know, I had contest preps where, you know, I did 12 weeks of essentially zero carb dieting, seven days a week of training. I remember one coach put me on a John Meadow, Meadows high volume protocol. I trained seven days a week, did two hours of cardio a day. Um, I was practically brain dead, to be honest with you guys. Like I was, I was at 23 already. I had a, um, was my first national sales position within the supplement industry. And I'm lucky that I held that position because during that prep, I was all but, um, non-functioning most of the day. And so it was impacting my life, my relationships. And after, you know, a couple of those preps, I, I, dealt with adrenal insufficiency, which is what a lot of people term adrenal fatigue, but adrenal fatigue actually doesn't really exist. You would actually have to get, you know, cortisol markers checked and do a Dutch and a 24 hour uh, cortisol testing. But I had what's considered adrenal uh, 
uh, insufficiency, which is the clinical diagnosis of what many people attest to or you know conflate with adrenal uh, fatigue. And so I went through a lot of situations. And the reason I'm so you know I always you, know, you guys know my tagline: a healthy body is a responsive body. And I had to learn that through trial and error. I had to learn that through having people dig my health to the ground and me being 22 and 23 and not knowing any better and going back to blood work with, you know, going back to these individuals, with my blood work and them telling me, oh no, you're good. And my AST and my ALT, which are liver markers are out of range. You know, my C-reactive protein, my markers of inflammation are through the roof and all these things. And I had to learn myself. So it took me getting into functional medicine. It took me in looking into integrative practitioners, meeting with these different professionals, spending every last dollar that I had to learn. I spent now, I've shared this with Jeremy. I've spent tens of thousands of dollars on blood chemistry courses to learn. And it took me being a precarious position where I was in a really bad state health-wise and I had no one that could help me. And I had coaches that were telling me I was fine or that wouldn't answer my emails to me to be the biggest proponent for my own health and to reanalyze everything I was doing and I was being prescribed by them and then change any philosophy that I had as a coach. And that's why I take such a different approach to you know, coaching in general. And and for instance, the first podcast I ever did with Jeremiah, it was called my health coach, uh, my health centric based coaching model. And I believe in that that is the foundation to everything I do, because I've had other people take advantage of me. And Jeremiah has been a mentor, uh, mentee of mine for a while. He knows the first thing I say is as a coach, our honor is to take the Hippocratic oath and we do no harm. And, and that's the first thing we should prioritize, making sure that we're helping our clients, both in terms of their physique, their health, their mentality, all these things. And so if I didn't have coaches that took advantage of me or didn't treat me as the same way that I would like to be treated, I would not be the coach I am today because anytime I have an experience with a client and I see where they're coming from or they're struggling, I'm able to put myself back into that mindset of when I was that client that was struggling. And I always make sure that no matter what happens with the client, if, if things go awry, if I feel that they've taken advantage of me or whatever it may be, I always remind myself that I need to be a better coach than anyone else that I had previously. And I need to keep propelling and moving the industry forward. And like Jeremiah said, setting that standard. So yeah, I had a lot of bad experiences and I'll tell, you know, often I'll, I'll speak with my clients on consultations and they're coming to me and they, they think I can't relate to them because I'm in great health and I'm great physique, whatever it may be, or whatever their conception of me is. And I'm like, listen, I've been there. I've had the coach that has taken thousands of dollars of my money and given me a cookie cutter program and never answered again. I've had people taking advantage of me. I've had, you know, missed emails that went a week and I didn't get a response. I've had guys that I've sent blood work and they were supposed to do a consultation. They never got back to me and I've been left, you know, hanging and drying in. Those were terrible experiences. That was a lot of, lot of loss of money and health and time. However, it caused me to push myself to learn more and, and to grow as a result. And so when I look back, I wouldn't change any of those for the world because it's really, it's pushed me to be who I am today and to really level up my education, my knowledge, and then also my application. Cool, man. Yeah. I, I, I think, you know, I'm the same way. I think in what you guys kind of said there that like, you know, we wouldn't change any of these things because they obviously give us that perspective and we're able to help our clients better because we've gone through those things. And I think, I think too many people try to like, be like, oh, I should have done this earlier. And I feel like I'm sure you guys have this conversation with clients all the time. It's like, even if they're like going through a fat loss phase or a building phase, it's like, look, like, yeah, maybe you don't feel like you're doing it perfect, but like, you know, you're learning things and you're going to be able to apply it in the future much better when you run a fat loss phase again or a building phase again. And I think, you know, that's kind of what I'm getting from you guys. And so like, for me, you know, same thing as Jeremiah, like, you know, nutrition, that was something that I just was under feeling. I was trying to get Jack, but then like you look at your diet and it's like, geez, man, that was way off. And then recovery too, right? Like I'm trying to train like upper body six days a week, six, seven days a week. It's like, Oh, today's an off day. All right. Well, I'm gonna go hit arms a little bit today. You know, just under recovering training way too much. Uh, from like a training perspective, I always remember, man, when I was in college, like, you know, it was always about, I'd go to the college gym and we would do like, 
um, you know, how much like do to put two twenty five on the bench and like hit like one rep or something like that. Just always trying to max out on the bench. Remember we hit like decline bench cause we could load that up more. And I always used to like, my shoulders would always bother me. I look back like that was obviously a big thing, but even like, I remember, dude, I got to the point where I was like dumbbell on seated. I was doing like 95 pounds for like two reps. I'm like, that is so dumb. Like no wonder my shoulders hurt me like crazy, you know? Um, but from an acute thing, one thing I did and you guys, I think you'll, you'll laugh at this. So, um, you guys remember Jack 3d, right? That's very well. The OG, uh, pre-workout. Okay. So that was my introduction to pre-workout. That's, uh, I feel like a blessing and a curse. Um, and so first time I took it, man, was at 10 o'clock at night. I remember, dude, it was like three in the morning and I was like laying in bed and I'm freaking going, I felt like I was going crazy. dude. I remember I like got up in the middle of the night and I was just doing like push-ups in the middle of the night. Cause I just, I couldn't sit still. And again, like for anybody that's taken Jack 3D, I, I know whatever was in there, they, they banned. But like, that was like some type of pre-workout that I, I can't even describe what that feeling was like. Can you guys kind of relate to that as well with that, with that pre-workout? A hundred percent. So that was one, three dimethylalamine. So that was a geranium extract that, that was pretty much like a methamphetamine. And so I'm going to tell you guys a perspective of a story I have on that product. So, um, I worked in the supplement industry since I was in college and I had a friend that actually, he was one of the guys that ended up starting the company shreds. If you remember that, that company, he was the business marketing director, but he was my training partner in college. He was a Calvin Klein model. The guy's been very successful, but, um, he was part of a fraternity. And when I was a freshman, he was already a senior. He invites me into a party. And so he calls me, you know, the, the night of, and he said, listen, can you give me any, like any mixers? So pretty much just, you know, fruit punch, whatever it may be. And I knew that he was into working out. So what did I bring him? I brought him a thing at Jack 3D. Now he was totally for it. He was, he was hundred percent for it. But before I, I know you guys remember like those Gatorade uh, gallon buckets, they're like five gallon buckets. We put a whole 45 scoop container of Jack 3D in there. I swear and now mind you, it's, it's going to be diluted. So it's less than a serving per person, but people that hadn't taken pre-workouts there, a lot of his, his roommates and all the guys in his fraternity, they loved me. They're like, this is awesome. We're mixing pre-workout and we're mixing vodka, whatever it is, jungle juice, whatever. And, um, yeah, a lot of the women did not have a great experience. That night. So it was, it was sweaty. There was a lot of tingling and, um, it was a wild experience, but I'll tell you that was, um, that's what I always remember about Jack 3d is being overly stimulated and being a chaser or even in the mix of jungle juice. That's insane. Oh, yeah. Pre-workout vodkas were a thing back in college. Dude, wow. Now it's like, holy shit. Dude, my first, my first pre-workout, one of my dad's friends just gave him this tub. He gave it to me and I thought it was something that was like illegal. I think mine was NO Explode and it was mine just, was dude, the crazy ex- experience of my life. That was the day me and my buddy, we just went to the YMCA literally for like three hours, just did every single movement we could think of. And that day I was like, I'm going to be a personal trader someday. And I literally like never even been into working out, but I'm very, very thankful for that experience because here we are. That's, that's so, that's so funny that pre-workout vodkas are a thing for everybody. Not something we're recommending though. To the no, absolutely not guys. Do not follow our lead. And just so you guys know, you can no longer get geranium extracts or Jack 3d. Um, so you guys can't even mimic our, our times. Um, well, and, and you guys talk about no explode, Jeremiah, that was the one where it's, I love how the name's no explode, but that was the one that like you would shake up in the bottle and it would just oh, yeah. literally would explode. It was like, I was like, that doesn't make any, <laughs> any sense at all. Um, all right, cool guys. Uh, you know, I think that's, that's a good place to stop. Um, yeah, good. I think today was a really good episode. So again, joy chatting with you guys. I think, uh, we'll, again, we'll have to do one here at the end of May and then we'll obviously be, I'll be meeting up at the beginning of June. So looking forward to that. Was there any closing remarks or anything from you guys? I think I'm good. 
Well, no. I do know that we have a couple more questions. So for anyone out there that has been waiting, keep in mind, we will be back again. We'll continue to do these at least on a monthly basis. Um, so, you know, just keep in mind, if you didn't hear your question answered, we'll get back to you. No worries. Yep. hundred percent. We'll make sure, we'll make sure we get to it. So uh, we love the questions too, and they're all good. So, um, all right, guys, we'll, uh, we'll talk to you next time.